0: beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in Lord's Day 32, which is the first Lord's Day of the third section of the Catechism that deals with our thankfulness, we consider the scriptural reality that those who are redeemed by the blood of Christ are also renewed by His Spirit. And those two things, they go hand in hand, redemption and renewal. They can't be separated in any way. There will be a significant change, or we could say a transformation, that is worked in the life of God's child. And their walk of life will show that the Holy Spirit is living in them, and that He is the one who governs every aspect of their life. Now here with Lord's Day 33, we receive the opportunity to dig a little bit deeper into what exactly that spirit-caused transformation will actually look like. You'll agree it's good for us to consider this. After all, it's one thing for us to say that we are transformed. But what exactly does that mean for us? What does it look like practically? How does it impact us from day to day? And even though that transformation is the work of the Holy Spirit that doesn't mean that we have no responsibility going forward. Certainly that transformation is a result of the Spirit's work. It's something that the Spirit begins. It's something that the Spirit continues. There's no doubt about that. There never comes a day when God the Holy Spirit leaves us to work on our own. But then having begun that transformation, we are called to put into action what the Spirit works. You can think here of the words of Philippians 2, verse 12 and 13. There the Spirit inspires Paul to write, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You could also think of what we confess in the Canons of Dort, chapter 3, 4, article 12. Thereafter, describing the renewing work of the Spirit in our regeneration, or our conversion, to use the language of Lord's Day 33, we also confess that, therefore, man himself is rightly said to believe and repent through the grace he has received. Well, there you have that word, which we also find in Lord's Day 33, repent, or repentance. Repentance. It's something that we rightly say that man does through the grace of Jesus Christ and the working of the Holy Spirit. And it is by truly repenting of sin that the believer does in fact begin to live the life of thankfulness to which each one is called. I proclaim to you the word of God under the following theme. True repentance results in true thankfulness. And we'll see first that true repentance involves our emotions... Secondly, that it involves actions. And finally, that it follows a standard. Now in answer 88, the catechism defines true repentance when it says that it is the coming to life of the new nature and the dying of the old. We should note here that the catechism is speaking about true repentance. It means that there is a kind of repentance that is not true. Or that is false. And that's why it's helpful that the Catechism goes on to teach us what the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new nature actually looks like, so that as we examine our lives, we can judge whether or not our repentance is truly from the heart, or if we're simply going through motions to put on a good outward show. And it is something that's very important to consider whether or not repentance is true or false. Because the reality is that false repentance is the same as being unrepentant. And we confess in answer question 87 of the Catechism that those who are unrepentant, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And when we look at the Catechism's explanation of what true repentance looks like, you see very clearly that it's something that has an impact On our emotions. Well, perhaps that puts us into uncomfortable territory. After all, people like to try and hide their emotions. Emotions are something private. They're not something we want to talk about too quickly. But our confession does not allow us to escape talking about how our emotions are affected by the working of the Holy Spirit. When you consider the dying of the old nature, then we confess before anything else that it is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin and more and more to hate it. It is very strong language. It's a very powerful image that the Catechism puts before us. Grieving with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. It's a deep sorrow that comes right from the heart. It's not something just superficially there on the outside. It's something that goes right down to the very core of who we are. And it's sorrow directed in the right place as well. We're not speaking here about sorrow that comes because we recognize that sin may have consequences in our life. That we cannot escape from those consequences at times. No, the reason for sorrow and true repentance is because we come to know that we have offended God by our sins. And that means, brothers and sisters, that we've come to know who our God is. You can think here of the words that we read in Isaiah 57 verse 15. There it describes our God in a very powerful way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Our God is exalted above everyone and everything else. There are none who even come close. Our God inhabits eternity. He has always been. He will always be. He's not bound by time like we are. And his name is holy. Holy. His very name says that he is completely set apart from sin and that he is perfect in every way possible. Well, when you know God in that way, and you consider that before this most powerful and this most holy God, we have committed sin after sin. That is... A horrible thought. And to think that since the fall into sin in the Garden of Eden, every human that has ever lived has sinned against this God. They've offended him time and again, even though he he is holy, even though his eyes cannot stand the sight of sin. That tears us right to the deepest place of the heart. And that's because the Spirit helps us to look at things more from God's perspective, not just our own. Well, when you think about it in that way, congregation, then we realize that emotion, the emotion that we're speaking of here in Lord's Day 33, that's not uncontrolled, that's not undirected emotion. It is emotion that is rooted in how great and how awesome our God is. And the fact that we have offended him so many times. And as we come to know this God more, then our sorrow also grows. Because truly knowing him also means recognizing that this is the God who loved us to the point that he sent his son to die on a cross for us, even while we were enemies of him. It's the greatest expression of love that is possible. And yet, despite the riches of that love, we still sin. And every time we offend God again and again. Well, that leads us to hating sin, which we also confess in answer 89. It's by the grace of the Holy Spirit that we grow in our hatred to sin. And that's not because sin doesn't bring us the joy or the satisfaction that we expected it to. It's because we realize that it affects our relationship with this most holy and this loving God. As those who are being renewed by the Holy Spirit you can see how our attitude towards sin changes so radically. But it starts with the emotions. Sin goes from being something that we embrace by our old nature to something that we increasingly hate and want nothing to do with. It goes from being something that we so easily excuse because it's just a little sin after all to being something that causes us to grieve. Because we know that even that so-called little tiny sin deeply offends our God. But it all starts with knowing who God is. If you take God out of the picture, you know nothing about his holiness or his love. Then there's no reason for sin to pose a problem of any kind. If you take God out of the picture, then there's no re- true repentance, even though there may be grief. That can only be a selfish grief because you're impacted by sin in a personal way and it has a negative impact on your life. True repentance is about the relationship we have with the Lord Almighty. And so we do not go wrong at all when we say that the Christian life is one that genuinely involves sorrow and grief. We grieve because we recognize our weakness. We grieve because we recognize that we are completely unable to be the people that God created us to be. We are incapable of being holy as He is holy. We cannot be perfect as our Father is perfect. We grieve because as we engage in that difficult and that tiresome daily battle against the old sinful nature, we more often than not lose that daily battle. true repentance also involves understanding that while we may lose so many battles ultimately we don't lose the war As we also confess in answer 90, true repentance, it also involves the coming to life of the new nature, which is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ. Yes, there is grief because of our weakness, but there is that joy too, because we know that in Jesus Christ, all that weakness, all that sin, it's covered by his precious blood. In that process of renewal and repentance, the Spirit directs us constantly to the blood of Jesus Christ, by which our salvation has been obtained. He directs us time and again to the fact that we are God's children, that we are precious in His sight, that we are blameless in His sight because of what Christ has done for us. Again, though we speak about emotion here, it's emotion that's coming from the right place It's emotion that comes through faith in our risen Savior, the one who has obtained all the benefits and blessings of salvation. He's the one through whom our Father in heaven can look upon us. And now say with those words of Isaiah 57 verse 16, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. True heartfelt joy comes with confessing that truth from the heart. And so the Christian life of repentance is not only one that involves grieving, but through the depths of sadness that we experience because of our sins, we rejoice continually. There is that heartfelt sorrow that comes because of our weakness, but there is also heartfelt joy that is ours. That's the result of knowing that our sin has all been atoned for and that God's wrath has been perfectly satisfied. True repentance involves our emotions. It's impossible that we would be renewed by the Holy Spirit, but our emotions would remain unaffected in any way. As we are confronted by by God's holiness and love, then we simply cannot be indifferent about our sin, even though we know it is washed away by the blood of Christ. As we live in the knowledge that our salvation has been freely obtained and given to us by God's grace, we cannot help but rejoice. Not because of anything we are doing, but because of what God has done for us. And that will show itself by our actions as well. Repentance, true repentance, is not only about emotions, it's also about actions. And we see that both in the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. With the dying of the old nature, there's not only this growing hatred towards sin, but there's also the increased willingness and motivation to flee from sin. It's interesting the word choice that the authors of the catechism use here. By saying that we have a growing desire to flee from sin, that implies that there is a sense of urgency here. Fleeing is something that you do quickly, because you recognize that there is a dangerous enemy that's very close by. You know that that enemy is more powerful than you, and that it wants to do you great harm. And additionally, by fleeing, there is actually a confession of weakness on our part. Because fleeing is running away. By fleeing, we are acknowledging that sin is something that can very easily overpower us. And so we need to get away from it so it doesn't overwhelm us. Well, that power of sin is not something that we can underestimate. Nor can we underestimate how destructive sin really is. Because of its great power, sin actually has that almost addictive quality to it. It's great lure. It has a strong attraction. It draws us in. And because we are weak, we so often fall. We fall not only into many sins each and every day, but there are certain sins that we continually fall into time and again. They seem to have a powerful grip on our lives. One that we can't break. And that weighs us down. Because then, accompanied by that, there's a constant feeling of guilt. Knowing that every time we commit that sin, we offend the Holy God again and again. So when you think about sin in this way, then you realize that fleeing from sin, that not only involves running away with all haste, it also means avoiding anything that will cause us to fall into sin. It means that we grow in our awareness of our natural weakness, and so we avoid putting ourselves into situations that will be led into temptation. And the reason there is that growing desire is because it's the Holy Spirit who works it in our hearts so that we understand that the grace of God is not something that's cheap. It's not something that we can take for granted. Instead, the Spirit teaches us that if we truly hate sin from the heart, we will flee from it. We will do whatever we need to do to get away from it. And we'll do whatever is necessary to avoid falling into it again. You can think here of the words that our Savior spoke in Matthew 5 verse 29. He says if your right eye is causing you to sin. Or your right hand is causing you to sin. Get rid of that member of your body. Well you'll realize that he's not talking here about amputating Part of your body. Rather, what he is teaching us is how far we need to be willing to go if we truly want to flee from sin. Fleeing from sin not only means taking the little steps and doing the little things in life, it also means taking big steps making radical changes. It involves action on our part. When you truly hate sin, you do whatever you have to do to avoid it. You don't give it even the smallest little place in your life. And that is part of the true repentance that the Holy Spirit works in us, that growing hatred, that growing aversion to sin. We put into practice what the Spirit works in us to do. And again, that is because of the relationship that we have with God. When we know, when we experience the love that he has poured out upon us. When we see everything that he's done for us over the course of our lives. Well then to still actively let sin have even that smallest part in our life. That is almost like slapping God in the face. But then before we get too far down under the weight of our guilt, the catechism once again brings us back to the joy that we have in Christ. He is the one who truly does grant us the forgiveness of sins, and by the Spirit he works in us the desire to live, not according to the old way of sin... But now to live according to the will of God in all good works. We confess that in answer 90. You see the contrast that exists between those two ways of life. Well, that joy and that delight to live according to the will of God, that's something that the Spirit works in us. We don't have to manufacture that joy for ourselves. That's also what we read about in Isaiah 57. There again in verse 15, the Lord says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit. To revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. As we begin to recognize the true depth of our weakness, our full dependence on the Lord, that begins to change us because we realize our God does not abandon us. He says that he's going to dwell with those who are contrite and with those who are lowly so that he is the one who revives them. That is, he dwells in them to give them renewed strength. He dwells in them to give them that renewed desire to live for him. No, right now we don't have that desire at all times. The power of sin is still something we have to fight against every day. Because that sinful nature is still working hard to try and assert its dominance. But God says, don't worry. Because I'm going to dwell in you. I'm going to revive you. So that your desire to live for me and to my glory is more and more being awakened. so what we hear is the powerful message of God's grace. That he does not leave us in spite of our unworthiness. He doesn't act against us as we deserve. Rather, because he has purchased us with the precious blood of his son, every day he gives us his Holy Spirit to work in us. To continue that process of renewal so that our longing and desire to live for him increases more and more. He gives us that growing delight to walk in his ways. To, live, to love to live in accordance with his will. All in response to what he has done for us. He is the one who helps us to be truly thankful in every way. And we're going to sing about that after the sermon with the words of hymn 13. That God is the one who provides strength so that those who walk by faith will not falter. Instead, they will have that daily promise of God that he is faithful, that he will revive the weak and the weary. He will sustain them with everything they need, especially with that continuing renewal by the Holy Spirit. God's love, God's grace are so clearly shown, not only in the fact that he redeems us, but also in how he takes the initiative to renew us. He makes sure that by the work of the Holy Spirit, we become in the end what he created us to be. Again, as we read in Isaiah 57, this time verse 14, he removes every obstruction from our way as we make our daily pilgrimage to our eternal inheritance. He takes away the obstruction of our sin through the blood of his son. He takes away the obstruction of our weakness through the renewing work of the spirit. And by it all, he works in us the ability to truly repent from the heart so that the old nature is put to death the new nature comes to life through which we show our true thankfulness. And he also gives us the guide, the standard for how we are to live before him. As that new nature increasingly comes to life, and we confess in answer 90 that we have a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. You see that there's this connection between true repentance and true thankfulness, both of which are going to result in good works. That's the natural response that will flow. But because our old nature is not yet fully put to death and is still battling for that supremacy in our lives, God reveals to us what exactly true, works, true good works are, so that we have direction. We know what it looks like. You see God is the one who sets the standard for how we are to live in thankfulness. That's not something that humans are permitted to do. True thankfulness is not self-willed. It is God-directed. And in answer 91, we actually confess that true good works have three requirements. They must be done out of faith. They must be in accordance with the law of God. And they must be done to his glory with no other motivation. And the truth is, nothing else will suffice. Not even a majority. Having two out of three in this case is not good enough. God has set his standard. He will not compromise that standard. And weak humans are not permitted to change that standard. But then the Catechism also adds one additional note about what good works are not. The reality is that the authors could have said a lot about what good works aren't, but they keep it simple. They say that good works are not those based on our own opinions or on the precepts of men. There's a good reason for the Catechism to add that specific warning about what good works aren't. That's because of the natural human tendency to be very easily satisfied with what we have done we start to think very quickly that maybe we're not so bad. We can justify everything we've done. And sometimes we even get to the point where we think we're getting pretty close to doing exactly what God requires of us. And even though God might make it clear to us that we are on the wrong track, we continue doing what we're doing because we are convinced in our own minds that what we're doing is right. We read about that in Isaiah 57 verse 17. There it says of the sinner, he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. Well, that one who's being referred to here in that passage, he's using the standard of his own heart to judge whether he's right or wrong. But because the heart is deceitful above all things, because the heart is a beyond cure, that person was entirely wrong. They were doing contrary to what God required. And so God makes it clear to us in his word what his standard is. So that we don't go running off in the wrong direction. Rather, as we put into action what the spirit is busy working in us, then we see the way that we should go. And the first thing he tells us is that if we truly want to do what is right and what is good... Then we need to live by faith. Without faith, nothing we do can ever please God. It's also what we read in Hebrews 11, verse 6. Without faith, everything is guaranteed to fall short. And that's not surprising either, because it's by faith alone that we are united to Christ, it's by faith alone that we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So if you take faith out of the equation, then what we are left with is nothing except the option to fix ourselves. Well, we know that that's not possible. And so the message we should be hearing is not that we have to go out and we have to try harder. It's not just do a little more and hope that over the course of life you get closer and closer to reaching God's standard. No, what we need to be hearing Is that we need to believe in Jesus Christ. Because it is only through him. And his renewing spirit. That we can ever make progress in our lives of holiness. Without him we are lost in every way. But without direction. But only when we live by faith. That is when everything starts to move in the right direction. When we live by faith, that is when true repentance becomes possible. So that we even begin to have this desire to do good works as the new nature comes to life. By faith alone, our whole life is being reoriented from serving ourselves to living for the glory of God. And that's true about our emotions then, and it's true about our actions. In summary, we can say that not only is true repentance only possible but also true thankfulness. They're only possible through faith. And when we live by faith and we realize that every day again, we go forward in the strength that our Lord supplies for us. He is the one who enables us to be what he created us to be. He is the one who maintains his love and faithfulness every day, giving us every day new reason for rejoicing, because he is our God and our Savior. And he gives us this message through Isaiah, peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Amen.